Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is the incredible author and screenwriter that is Nikesh Shukla. Nikesh is a writer's writer. I'm aware he hasn't got household name status yet, but he's fucking good, and he's a fantastic mentor to the latest generation of British writers. You will have felt his influence in the British publishing world with things that you've read. Most notably, he edited The Good Immigrant, the collection of essays exploring what it means to be black, Asian and ethnic minority in modern-day Britain. It did quite well. Won a few awards, featured essays from people like Oscar winner Riz Ahmed and former BBC employee Nish Kumar. It's very good. In fact, it's one of those books that loads of middle-class white people have bought but haven't read. It's really worth reading. It's been out since 2016. It's time we've read it. But that's not what this interview's about. After years of mentoring, Nikesh has finally published his book on how to write. It's called Your Story Matters, and it's a very personal guide to motivate you to tell your stories. It's not a book that says, follow this blueprint and you'll have a bestseller. It's a book that convinces you not to give up, to have self-belief in the stories that you write, to see your story through until it's fully on the page. Basically, it's the writing book you actually need if you're struggling to start or finish your story. But that's not what this interview's about either. It's about Nikesh's writing process. He can teach this stuff and motivate others to write, but how does he do it when no one else is watching? How does he structure his writing day? That's what we're here for. Now, Nikesh is a super busy guy, and I've wanted to interview him since the very start of this podcast, but he's never had the time, until now mainly because he had COVID and wasn't able to leave the house. So I'm very pleased to bring you this interview, and I'm very grateful to Nikesh for his time, and I'm really pleased with all of his answers. Without further ado, may I present Nikesh Shukla. And today I'm joined by Nikesh. Hello, Nikesh. Hi. Hello. And hey. my... <laughs> my first question as always is what are we drinking is this a question that should be answered realistically or optimistically well we'll go realistically but then we can say what your preferred drink is generally um i'm having water i've got covid i don't feel great but i'm muddling through because i love podcasts <laughs> not all heroes wear capes but we're we appreciate you but but they all stay very well hydrated yes absolutely so i'm also on the water and i greatly appreciate it because a lot of my guests tend to choose caffeinated drinks and it annoys my wife immensely when i come off very hyper after an interview but yes what is your regular writing drink coffee coffee live for the coffee and how do you take your coffee are you are you uh, black coffee through and through or very milky very sugary no black coffee black no. coffee really sets the day up, I think. Yeah. It, but it, it's a ritual as well. Being a coffee snob, I like to have beans to grind. And I like to have a coffee that involves some sort of like mechanical action. So I have yeah. an AeroPress and, you know, it makes the whole house smell of mm. that sort of delicious roasted with a hint of chocolate aroma nice. of my preferred coffee okay brand we we could try and go for a sponsorship here do you have a your preferred <laughs> brand of beans that hopefully will send a crate to your house once they hear <laughs> listen, about it listen perfecto the coffee shop that is up the road from me your vietnamese blend is delicious and okay. you know this because i'm there once a month for my kilo of coffee nice okay and uh are you very particular about the grinder that you use for your beans have you 
did you do a lot of research for that or did you just buy one off Amazon? I think I'm very easily led is the honest answer to that. I have a grinder that was gifted to me and I like it. But then whenever I go to uh, the house of someone who is more of a coffee snob than me and they have more gadgets and more intricate gadgets, I start to think I'm half playing this game. I'm playing division four football. <laughs> against Premier League players here. Yeah. I, I also have an AeroPress. I do really uh, enjoy using it. But yeah, I did go into a deep dive and research and coffee and just realized the ridiculousness of how much money you can spend. And I think the peak was seeing a four grand grinder, not even a coffee machine, just to grind the beans to the proper grind. And I was like, you know what? I'm fine. Listen, listen <laughs> I need to show my friend Dave <laughs> how it's done so drop me the link to that four grand grinder okay. because uh, if i ever have a payday where i can afford a four grand yeah. <laughs> coffee grinder out of it yeah it, it was a thing of beauty but i was just like my wife will never ever agree to me to, for me to spend more on coffee than we do on our car so that's fair and where i'm speaking to you now um, <laughs> welcome to the real coffee <laughs> drinking process it's an important part of being a writer is what you drink whilst you work. And I, I'm quite I, happy well, to go down. I don't know, man. I feel like it's so easy to romanticize the thing, the communing with the cosmos aspect of writing, which is setting the mood with the right ar aromas and tastes and sounds and having your desk faced a certain angle out of the window at a certain time of day during certain weather conditions and have your pen heated on the radiator for X amount of time. So it's body temperature or whatever it is. But ultimately all of this is just like procrastination. You just can't sit down yeah. and write the fucking thing. Right? No, absolutely. But it's nice to hear everyone's individual procrastination. Oh um, yeah. Look, over lockdown, being in one place, which was something that I'd never really had before in terms yeah. of before lockdown, my working week was so erratic. I would pretty much just write on trains or at my desk in my co-working space. But so much of being a writer is noticing the world right it's mm. looking up is just being out in the world and noticing it and so much of writing is what's noticed and if my day involved me being on a train because i needed to be somewhere and i would write on the train there would be everything that i noticed on the way to the train and on the train journey itself mm. that would sort of fuel the book or if i was going to my co-working space i'd have the interactions i'd have with the other artists in my co-working space or the journey in or any thoughts i might have had or any stray podcast tidbits or like a piece of music but going into lockdown i just had none of that and i was just stuck in one place i wasn't experiencing the world other than through a lot of television and the view i had was a static view because everyone, we were all just in our homes. And so I had to really think about how to conjure that thing for me, which I, I sometimes put that communing with the cosmos aspect of writing for me came from motion and momentum yeah. and the energy that that sparks. But when I was in one place, I had to do like funny fiddly things like create a playlist and I'd pl I'd have that playlist play on shuffle while I prepared my coffee and then I'd sit down at my desk and let the playlist play and then I would begin and I'd have all these little tricks and things like that and you know I'd have things like mood boards and like um it helped me to think about writing in a different way and then I I was chatting to the amazing writer Caleb Azuma Nelson a couple of weeks ago he wrote the amazing novel Open Water I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story. I mean, he told it on stage, yeah. so why, why would he mind? But he talked about when he was writing Open Water, he would basically go to the British Library and 
spend like a morning there or an afternoon there and the first hour he would just look at photographs or a photograph and study it or he would read something that spoke to the thing to the section that he was writing and he talked about how to put himself in the frame of mind for the thing that he was working on he would you know he'd study all this stuff and it was really inspiring to hear another person's process because I'd never considered that before. I, I I always just considered being in the moment that I would be writing, but then open water comprises short fragments and he would probably work on a fragment a day. And so he would be able to pull himself into that fragment through all of this stuff. But it made me think that like when I'm back at my desk, I'm going, I've just had a book out last week. So I'm a, a little bit chaotic again. Yeah. But when I'm back at my desk properly, I'm I'm going to try doing something like that, where instead of starting with the writing, I start with something that kickstarts the brain or just mm. forces me to notice. Because I think the art of noticing is so important and it cannot be taught and it's, it's really underrated. Yeah. And so with your process now do you think because you've got your home writing space and you've set that out over lockdown do you think you'll ever return to a co-writing space or writing on trains or do you feel that it's improved have it being centered at home or do you miss how you used to write well this brings up the existential question of whether we are all yearning to return to the life we all led before lockdown or whether lockdown has uh, sufficiently changed the way we view our lives. I think what I've come to realize is I don't think I need to be sitting in the same place every single day. Mm. I think what I need actually is a change of environment because mm. a change of environment can give me different energies. I think what I do, what I want to retain from lockdown was that thing of listening to music as a mm. way, way into whatever I'm doing. So this novel that I'm working on at the moment, I worked on a previous draft of it in 2020 during the like the months of lockdown, just because it felt like something I could control in, in uncertain times. And it was a terrible draft and that's why I'm rewriting it from scratch. But what I did was create a playlist for these characters that had no context in my life other than this is music that these characters would play at a barbecue in June in summer. And it would tell you everything you need to know about the types of people they are, the type of socioeconomic background they might have, the part of London they, they live in, all that kind of stuff. And it was really helpful. Like it really helped me to conjure a certain mood. And the thing that I'm doing at the moment, there's like a real experiential quality to the story because it's like, this is a book about aesthetics and like the very nature of aesthetics. And so like doing things like listening to music and studying photographs, I think all of that stuff is going to really, really help me to the point where I probably would just find that instead of my laptop, I'm just carrying around a lot more stuff. Mm -hmm. Because I think the other thing is when I was just writing on trains and at my co-working space, everything had to be findable on my computer. But actually there's something about the kind of the kinesthetic element mm. of like handling this stuff that I think I really would appreciate. Might seem like a trivial question, but I'm just interested in when you're creating playlists and you've got a playlist that is evocative of the novel that you're working on, is that all bands and musicians that you knew already, or did you discover musicians that you're like, oh, this kind of captures what I'm after? And if so, who are they? Well, this is where I'm a big fan of 
the algorithm, but also I can see the downsides of the algorithm in that my Spotify now knows me well enough to throw bands or throw music at me that fits in with the stuff that I really like or pushes me to discover like classics that I may have had a like a cursory listen to. And also like my Spotify is also really good at taking me around the world. Yeah. And, you know, I've discovered so much amazing music from the African continent over the last two, two years of obsessively like cycling through stuff. And all of that has led me to, because I think the problem with the algorithm is if you don't capture it from an algorithm generated playlist, then it's forgotten forever. Mm. And you don't have that engagement with the artist. Uh, yeah. that you might might do if it's a physical thing but it's just really got me into record buying again and okay cool like i really like there's no greater joy than putting a record on while you're making a coffee mm. and you're just thinking about the thing that you're going to be doing and that record and that coffee just conjure something for you so like i do really appreciate the days where i get to just be in my own space doing mm. that i imagine there will be times where i'm writing on trains again and i won't it won't feel the same. What's the latest record that you've bought that while well, you're putting on your coffee, you're really into at the moment? I really love like, there's an Ethiopian jazz musician called Mulatu Asatke. And there's a type of Ethiopian jazz called Tezata, which is like very nostalgic. And there's a song that he does called Tezata. It must be a standard. I, I don't know enough about it but I'm obsessed with listening to every single version of that song that I can find. It's just the most beautiful piece of music. There's also a record by Jenna Horn that I really love as well, which is like really soft, sad acoustic songs that yeah. make me feel sad in my heart. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Nice. And, um, I know sort of through interviews that you've done in the past and in your book, your story matters as well. A lot of your novels, are, are based around a question. And the novel is written in a way for you to answer that question or to try and find an answer to that question. Is that the same with this novel? And if so, could you tell us the question? Yes and no. Okay. <laughs> Fair <laughs> oh, enough. I, 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 guess, I, I guess it's just in that it's just in that thing where I'm still just figuring it out at the moment. So I've had these characters in my head for a very long time and the version of their story that I wrote in 2020 that I junked, I wrote about the end of their relationship. And the more I wrote about the end of their relationship, I felt like I wanted to, given that they were each other's first love, first significant love, I just wanted to spend some time with them in the throes of first love. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to just park what I was doing and I may come back to it and just write about their meeting because their meeting is like a depth charge yeah. through both of their lives. And that's been really beautiful. So I'm writing about first love and the path of love, the path yeah. of true love never runs smoothly and all that kind of stuff. And there are some questions about how we bring all of ourselves to being in love when we've spent so long, like masking those parts of ourselves. And so I see, I'm not very fluid in talking about that's it okay. yet because it's just yeah. in that sort of very tender stage it's, it's not even a newborn yet yeah. it's still it's still i was gonna say i'm still pregnant with it but that's an awful <laughs> that's not thing to say. so i take it you've not completed a first draft of the current novel there's still a form of uh plotting and planning out how the story is going to unfold or ha have you done your first draft and you're now looking to refine it i'm working through an edit of it okay. at the moment okay. like this one's really hard to talk about because i don't want to like <laughs> 
let people peek under the hood too much because I'm yeah. trying something quite experimental with it and almost talking about the experiment that I'm going on undermines the point of the experiment, but also right. it's just not at a stage where I feel confident <laughs> about it. Like I was so confident about the version of it I was writing in 2020. And then yeah. when I decided to junk that, then, um, I was, I sort of lost some faith. I lost faith in my abilities for a little bit, but actually I just need to, I just need to let it live with me a little bit longer. Yeah. And I guess sort of when you parked it, you then went and wrote your story matters. Is that, was that what you did in between or has your story matters book been in development for quite a long time? No. So last year I wrote your story matters and I wrote a YA book, but both in tandem, which was okay. quite hard. They were both under contract. So I needed to do them both at the yeah. same time, which is quite <laughs> yeah. an interesting thing to balance the two. Cause on the one hand I'm going, this is how you write. And on the other hand, I was like, this is all the advice that I need to take on how to write. <laughs> and yeah, so I've, I've written a third YA book, which hopefully will be announced soon. Okay. I don't, I don't know when it'll be announced, but nice. it'll be out early next year. Around this time next year, it'll be out. Okay. So can we take that? people reading your story matters. It's like, well, this all applied to his next YA book. Was it a very self-aware process when you were going through, or was it more based on the teachings that you've done as a writing mentor over the last few years? The, the way I, I should probably talk about it more once it's announced or okay. once it's actually out. But what I will say about it is I'd already written two YA books for my publisher. And so there was a sense that we have a working relationship. And mm -hmm. so for this one, all I had to do is write a couple of chapters to give them a sense of the tone and give them a detailed plan, which I did. And that's what they bought. And then I had to do the thing of following the plan as closely <laughs> as I could. And, and actually, because writing is funny like that, like it doesn't a hundred percent follow the plan, but the plan made it well, like the plan meant it was in really good shape. Yeah. And so it came out quite structurally sound and yet there's always work to yeah. be done on things, but it's really been, it's really been a joy to write because it's a return to comedy, which nice. I've been wanting to do for a long time. Good. Yes. No, I, I do enjoy your comedy. And with planning, is that something that you've always considered yourself a, a writer who plans, or is it something that's developed? And that at the start, you didn't really plan at all. And you've, you've formulated how to plan as your careers progressed. I think there's always a bit of both with planning. I think it's always good to have a direction of travel, but sometimes you want to take the long way around, or mm. sometimes you want to go down a, a side street or, and sometimes you'll go, oh no, this side street will cut a corner. And then you'll get down the side street and realize that actually you've got to walk your way back to the main road and all the rest of it. I think a plan is useful, but a plan is not like a hard and fast manifesto for a novel. I think a plan is a really good direction of travel, but you have to give yourself space to find stuff in the writing because yeah. the more you write your characters, your knowledge of them deepens. And the, mm -hmm. the more your knowledge of them deepens, the more you're able to push them and take them in certain directions and make them feel things and learn things about them and get those things on the page. And if you cut off your opportunity to do that, then you end up, you can end up with a really well structured, but <laughs> boring or heartless novel. But if you don't plan that, you can end up with a novel that is a structural mess, but is all voice, which, yeah. you know, both can work, but a great piece of work is somewhere between the two. Yeah.
So with that, do you make <coughs> lots of notes or do you prefer to keep sort of everything in your head? Uh, you'd map out a rough outline and then as it comes to you, just keep it in the brain. Or do you like to say, actually, now I'm going to put this in a file on my computer or have a note app on my phone or have a notebook or post-its? Do you make notes or do you keep it all in your head? It's all kind of a bit of both, because I think the more the characters exist in your head, the more you're able to channel them in a way that means you can just experience them. Mm -hmm. You know, characters don't always think in backstory or they don't always think, what is the type of thing that I would have for breakfast? They would just get a bowl out and start yeah. eating their breakfast. But then being in the world and of the world and noticing stuff, you tend to think this might be an interesting thing for a character like you know, you might be on a Zoom call and someone might say something so perfect and you might go, that's going to go in somewhere. <laughs> I hope they forget they said that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I have various notebooks for various things. I've got one notebook at the moment where if a word interests me, I will write it down in the book. Just to give you an example of some of the stuff that's in this, this notebook um, that sort of might not make sense to anyone, but I have written down arid exquisite, drastic, putrescent. <laughs> These are just like random <laughs> yeah. words, that sandalwood. I don't know, you know, like sometimes a word just jumps out at you off the mm. page and it's not particularly like a sexy word, yeah. but you just need to write, make a note of it somewhere. Yeah. And with notebooks, do you like to always have a notebook on you or do you feel that's a bit of a writer cliche and it's just certain times that you might take a notebook out with you? I always have... Uh, a notebook that fits into the pocket of whatever I'm wearing. And sometimes they don't always make it. And sometimes yeah. they get left places. But, you know, I have a phone. It has a notes yeah. app. Notes apps aren't just for uh, apologies when you said something stupid on Twitter. They're also <laughs> for taking notes. Yeah. And as you are with your coffee, are you very particular with a brand of notebook or a brand of pen? Or is it just disposable as they often get left out where it's just, what's the cheapest one I can just get in a shop? I tell you what, I'm quite a fan of the classic exercise book mm -hmm. that you might get at school. There's oh, yeah. something quite functional about them. Like yeah. I'm not, they don't need to be pretty, the notebooks, because I don't make a show of them. They're just, just they're there to perform a function. Yeah. Yeah. And going right back to the ritual of writing through the day, of the, the daily writing process now you've made your coffee you've put your music on you've, you've got in the zone do you have a set time of day that you write is it the first thing in the morning is it once the kids have gone to school is it late at night when everyone's gone to bed when do you write best and how frequently do you write i write in the morning yeah. without fail like is i try make sure it's one of the first things i do so i try not to have any zoom meetings before 11 o'clock unless it's really urgent but that way i have until 11 o'clock to do some stuff. And, I, and I'm a big believer in rather than worrying about word count going, oh, I need to do a thousand words a day, which on the days when you're feeling like crap and you're stressed because of other stuff in your life and you didn't sleep very well, like sometimes writing a thousand crap words a day isn't really going to help you in the long yeah. run. It might help you get your word count out now, but writing a novel isn't about quick wins it's about yeah. the long-term life of the book so yeah trying to do five sessions a week where until 11 o'clock i'm writing i used to um i used to do a thing called writer's hour which the london writer salon set up 
at the start of lockdown, which was really great. They just did morning pages where yeah. it was like eight till nine, you'd just get on a Zoom with 500 other people and just write for an hour in silence. Yeah. And there was just something about the camaraderie and not feeling like you were alone, which was really yeah. lovely. But then I had to stop when schools opened up again because mm. it always just meddled with the school run. So I set my own one up with a bunch of friends. And so like me and five or six other friends, we would do the same thing between nine and 11 and it was just the best thing in the world. But then we've all now got too busy to be able to do that, but I still try and keep that time for yeah. myself. So most mornings I have that time for myself, which is really great. Yeah. And then after 11, is it just like writing adjacent stuff, answering emails? interviews, podcasts, that sort of thing, or do you ever do your editing in the afternoon? So it's just get the words on the page in the morning and then review them in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. I have so much other stuff going on at the moment that like, it just ends up being meetings Mm. and trying to fit everything else around the meeting. So like before 11 is when I'll do the novel. Yeah. So like editing or doing script stuff happens in the other pockets of the day. Mm. But because a lot of the TV stuff I do involves lots of meetings in America, I end up having quite long days. So I've just had to be okay with the passage of time and the usage of time and know that I don't have to work nine to five every day like I can. So on Fridays between 12 and five, a, a thing I do every Friday without fail is from 12 to five, I will go and experience life. I will go and do something or eat something or go somewhere. I'm not allowed to document it or tweet about it or like use it as material for an essay or a short story or anything. Just do something. So like go to a gallery. I went bouldering last week. (laughs) I might go and see the Batman again. I might go to get some lunch on the other side of town and and then walk back rather than drive or take public transport. So, you know, like little things like that on a Friday, like that's becoming quite a sacred time for me as well, Mm. because I think. Going back to my first point, like so much of being a writer is, yeah, one one thing is being a reader, but the other thing is just noticing stuff and yeah. being in the world and reflecting that world back onto the page, which is something that I don't do enough of. Yeah, you need inspiration. You need to get out in the world. And I think it's a wonderful thing to actually have, as you say, a sacred time, which is undocumented and just for you. I think that's great. I think a lot of writers can have uh, self-doubt with the project. Obviously, you said with the novel that you're working on now, you paused it for two years. But more interested in exploring that because I'm aware with a lot of writers, there can be a stage in a project where you can lose faith with it. Is that something that you find on, on every project? You might get to a certain point where you go, I'm not sure about this anymore. Uh, or do you find that once you've committed to a project, it's actually quite easy to see it through to the end? There have been times where it's taken me to the end of a completed draft to go, this isn't working or this isn't fixable or this is not going to work. Other times I've had that classic thing where I've gone, oh, the thing I'm working on is too hard. I'm going to work on this brilliant other idea I've had and get that out quickly and sell it for loads of money and retire (laughs) to Malibu. And then I'll get 10 pages into that and go, oh my God, what am I doing? This This is much more fun in my head. I think I've become okay with the knowledge that not everything I work on will find its way out into the world. I think if you've worked at all in television, you get to learn that really quickly. Like I have been pretty much full-time in development in the TV world since 2011. And yet I've had one thing on TV and I've had, I've made one short film and that's it um, in terms of broadcast credits. And I think that's pretty 
like that's not out of the ordinary that's not abnormal in any way but it teaches you that you have to start each project with maximum ambition but you have to have zero expectation that it'll ever get yeah. made and i've just put that into the book stuff as well like i've started essays and book ideas and short stories and stuff and they haven't really gone anywhere but sometimes a kernel of them gets used somewhere else because for me writing is about extrapolating and interrogating and trying to understand sometimes it's the process of wrestling with the project that does the interrogating for me rather than the need to finish it in a polished way and also like there is that other thing of being a writer where like everything is material every conversation i had every interaction i have is potentially material and like sure but i just don't think that if you go into your life thinking that or if you go into each interaction oh yeah i'm going to go to my friend joe's surprise birthday party on the isle of Wight. that'll make for a good short story one day i think if you assume that everything is going to be material, you just end up not living your life. Yeah. And I'm the type of writer where I need to be in the world and not worry about narrating the world first. Yeah. No, absolutely. And actually what you were saying there, you're working in television. You're someone who's written in a variety of different formats, nonfiction essays. Uh, you've written articles, uh, in newspapers. You've got your uh, YA books, you've edited collections of essays. When you've got these questions that you want to answer, that's your starting point for your writing projects. How do you decide what's the best way? Is there something about the question that you go, this is a novel idea, or actually, I think this is more of a, a, a YA portrayal that I want to do with this, or actually, I'm just going to write an essay. And just really deconstruct um, it that way. You're asking me this question, like I've got loads and loads of say about a variety of projects. Actually, I'm only really interested in two or three things. That's the problem. Like I'm interested in like two or three things thematically and they crop up again and again in my work. I guess things like age or perspective change the type of interrogation of those same three things, but all of my work has the same th thematic resonance in it. So like you can't draw a line through all of that work. It just becomes a case of going, what is troubling me this time about this thing? And I don't know, I think that rather than thinking what form is this going to take, I try and think of how I want to answer this question. Yeah, sometimes I have to kind of work out whether it, this is like a personal interrogation or like a slightly more external one. That and that kind of leads the journey, and also tonally what I want to do. My a bit, my inclination is to always push for comedy anyway. Like, what's the funniest version of this that I can tell? And sometimes the funniest version of this is the version that's outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I don't think I could like comedify myself to the weekly extent that someone like say Tim Dowling does. Sometimes the stories I want to tell, the way to make them funny is to go, who would be the most ridiculous person in this situation? Yeah. Okay, cool. And another thing I wanted to cover off with you was about your redrafting and rewriting process. You're in the middle of a, a rewrite at the moment. Are you someone who edits as they go? So you'll start nope. a right. Nope. <laughs> so yeah. you, you write a complete draft beginning to end and then go back and go, does this make sense? Yeah. Uh, Someone once said, uh, she said on Twitter, uh, fuck, you know what? Exclusive for yeah. the listeners. I'm going to Google this right now. Cause I quote this so often and I was yeah. like, I can never remember who said it. And it's, it's very disrespectful to the writer 
Shannon Hale, the writer Shannon Hale. I need to remember Shannon Hale because it's such a brilliant quote. She tweeted in 2015, when writing a first draft, I have to remind myself constantly that I'm only shoveling sand into a box so later I can build castles. Hmm. Which I love. I love that idea because the first draft is so formless and it's a splurge of energy and ideas and characters who aren't fully lived in yet and their ciphers for the theme they're not complex human beings just yet or complex aliens or complex yeah. uh, beasts or you know whatever the, the thing is and so often that first draft is just about shoveling stuff into the box yeah i think if i'm editing as i go i won't have an idea of the bigger picture certainly not yeah. until i get to the end and i think that people who edit as they go end up spending more time line editing than thinking about structural stuff. Yeah. And the structural stuff is much more important when you're editing. You have to think about it like this, start with the big picture stuff, start with the structural stuff, get yourself closer and closer to the line. And the point at which you're just moving commas about is the point at which you're probably done, but yeah. don't worry about those commas and don't worry about those adverbs and don't worry about that syntax until you've worried about the big picture stuff, like. The middle 50 pages is really boring. Could that just be yeah. one line or whatever yeah. it is? You set up a lot of plot strands in the first 20 pages and only one of them goes anywhere. There's just no point worrying about the small stuff right now. Yeah. And going from your first draft to your second draft, do you decide to just read through your first draft, take on board what you want to achieve and then write a brand new draft? Or do you prefer to just rework individual sections? What I do is before I start editing as I read the draft in its entirety mm -hmm. and I experience it as a reader and try and trust myself as a reader because I am a writer. I've written eight books, but I have read <laughs> eight times that or eight times that. I don't know. Yeah. I've read a lot, a huge amount more than I've ever written. And so I trust myself as a reader more than I trust myself as a writer. And if I don't experience the work as a reader, then I won't necessarily know what to do. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you've read it for that first time, uh, you know, or you, you digest it as the reader version. And then where do you go? I'm going to focus on this little bit, or actually I'm just going to put this to one side and try and write it from memory. Cause those are two sort of different methods that I've come across writers do. Is there one that resonates with you more that you'd prefer to just go, I'm going to take on board what I've just read and try and write it again? Or is it just going, I'm going to take what I've read and I'm, I'm going to go through it and make notes and get the red pen out. One thing that I really appreciate from my work with editors is they've really helped me to learn how to edit myself. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I writers don't really talk about this, but I think it's probably the most valuable thing that happens in the whole of publishing. So when you get your editorial notes, from an editor back the first round of notes they don't send you up a marked up manuscript that points out all of your adverbs and misplaced commas and all the rest of it what they do is they write you a letter and the letter starts with what's working which is really valuable to know <laughs> and then they tell you what could be better and they make suggestions as to how you could go about making that better and before they've done any of that they've sat down with you on the phone or in a calf and they've talked you through all of that stuff and i find that the act of reading my work and then writing myself a letter on what's working and what could be better is the most helpful thing I can do for myself mm. because I'm then in control of what I want the book to be. Yeah. And I guess articulating 
to yourself what's working and what isn't. And actually having that on a page really gives you a structure of where you need to go. So you've got to the point where you're just shifting the commas around. You've got your edit day. Who after then does it go to? Do you have beta readers that you've gathered and trust? Does it go straight to an editor or your agent? Or does your wife get a pass over it before it goes out of the house? Who reads it next? It really depends on where the book is. Mm -hmm. So there are instances where the book is under contract and it might go straight to the editor and CC'd into my agent. So like with the YA book, I worked on the proposal with my agent. And so she was across what it was going to be. And so when the first draft was done, I just sent it directly to the editor and copied her in. So she could have a read of it if she wanted to. This book that I'm trying to finish at the moment, because I'm trying something different, trying something that I've not attempted before, there are a couple of people who I will send it to and get their read on it. But I don't like, it really depends on where the book is. Mm. So the new experimental book that I won't push you too much on because I, I respect your process, but I'm gathering that's not under contract. No, no. no. It's not. Okay. Okay. That's cool. So yeah. So that might be a little while longer just for the listeners to know before that sees the light of day. Um, after edits, after, you know, it's kind of signed off and off to proof sort of level. Do you feel like a, a sense of relief of uh, finishing a project? Is that grief of I've been with these characters so long and I'm not going to be working with them anymore. Um, what's the feeling when a project's over or is it just like, phew, that's done onto the next one. There's this really lovely song by Warren Zevon where the chorus goes, keep me in your heart for a while. And that's how I often feel about the period between finishing the book and it coming out, because there's always a period of time. And the moment a book is out, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to readers because readers bring their own sense of self to every read. No reader reads a book in a vacuum. No reader reads a book objectively. Every reader reads a book and projects a part of themselves onto that book. And that's totally fine. But that is the point at which a book doesn't belong to me anymore. And I just have to let it go and move, move on to the next one, which is um, the most helpful thing I can do in those situations. Cause that's the only bit I can control the moment a book is finished and the text is done and there's no more changes to be made. It just doesn't belong to me anymore. And the only bit of the process I can control, I can't control how much it sells. I can't control what reviews it might get either from professional critics or from people who do user reviews on like Amazon or Goodreads and all the rest of it. Uh, I can't control how people will talk about it on Twitter, if at all, if they're going to talk about it at all. What I can control is the writing. And that's the only bit I want to be able to control. So it's always important to know what I'm moving on to next. So as you say, that, leave it in your heart a while. Do, do you have any kind of rituals at the end of a, a project or do you just take an afternoon off to go bouldering and you start thinking about the next project? I throw a massive party, get my friend Reggie to play garage and just rave with my friends pretty much. <laughs> Is that a genuine answer or just an, uh, yeah, no, it's yeah, a genuine oh, answer. Oh, amazing. Every book party I've had has been like a rave. Okay. Basically. That's cool. That's nice. Yeah. That's excellent. And you know, you've mentioned Twitter a, a few times in there. It is. A conversation I have with a lot of writers about social media and whether or not it 
essential or just an unfortunate necessity in promotion of a writer. I'm interested as someone who has been quite active with social media, what your views are on it. Is it a necessary evil or do you really enjoy uh, using it as an extra tool? For me personally or for other writers? No, for you personally. I, yeah, I've got no, no time for Twitter really no. anymore. It's just not a place that I find is useful for my mental health for a variety of reasons. I think I spent a long time thinking I wanted a public profile and then I got one and it was lots of people uh, wanting my opinion on race and immigration issues and that became quite hard. And then to like, then have your tweets be taken out of context and shoved into various articles across the political spectrum where people are like starting up fights in your direction because of stuff that you've said online. It's just not good for me, man. Like I joined Twitter to meet writers and chat rubbish and I can do that on WhatsApp groups yeah. rather than publicly on Twitter. And I know that I know that I have a public platform and so I can use that public platform for good, but at the same time, I don't have the same robust sense of self that I can spend hours trawling through Twitter, searching for the right thing to retweet in order that I, I might help draw other people's attention to it. I just think that, sure, I have that platform, but at the same time, I don't have the mental energy for yeah. finding the right tweets to bring to people's attention. It takes time. That's curation, especially if it comes with the responsibility of having a public platform. I have quite a small public platform comparatively, but it's still one where useful stuff can be done to it, but it's just not good for my head. No, that's completely fair. And I think, yeah, sort of the social aspect of it's taken away when you get to a certain public persona size. So having WhatsApp groups where you can vent and check in with people, that's your social base. And, yeah. and also like those friends get annoyed when you don't see their tweet and you just yeah. think, well, text me. And <laughs> I, I can't have parasocial relationships to my actual friends as yeah. well. Like that doesn't make sense to me. And there are times where having a public platform, but also chatting to your friends can make other people assume some familiarity with you, or it might make your friends like say stuff that you might say, say to them in private, which can then <laughs> blow up into a big thing because it's mm. taken out of the context of a friendship, which... Yeah that makes it uncomfortable for you to then have to tell your friend, look, dude, people watch. And all of that stuff just makes you realize it's just not a good way to have actual friendships. And so I'm just not really present with it at the moment. No. I don't know if I'll ever come back to it or whether I need to, or what good it does for me yeah. personally anymore. Like maybe I've just had my time with it. Yeah. Like I did a good 10 years with it. And then I think I joined in 2011, maybe no, 2009, I joined mm. Twitter and then a thing happened at the end of 2020 that was really fucking egregious and just made me realize that I don't want to be on there anymore and so yeah. April last year I just decided to stop tweeting yeah and you mentioned sort of whatsapp groups and having those sort of uh, social groups do you have consider yourself having a group of writing peers uh, like a network of people that you might just talk about writing uh, a peer group level and if so how did that develop uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know how it developed quite organically, I guess. There wasn't like an application form or anything. <laughs> it wasn't that like you all met at like one event and then just said, let's start up a, a WhatsApp group. It was just a few of you started chatting and were like, we'll start a group and, oh, actually we should 
add so-and-so to the group. It could talk about that way. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, it happened quite organically. Yeah. And do you find writing networks useful if finding other writers very beneficial to you? Yeah, for sure. I think I've just been lucky in that I have been around for a long time. Like mm. I've been doing stuff amongst writers since 2003, 2004. And so there are a bunch of writers who I just came up with at the same time and then got to put them in the good immigrant. And then it's just now that I'm seeing people finally give people like Selena Godin and Moose Rock Wonga the props they deserve. They've always been like two of my favorite writers, but also yeah. two people I've just known yeah. for an incredibly long time. And yeah, I, I don't know, like I live in Bristol and I'm sort of outside of the London cliquey vortex of hipster literature <laughs> stuff, yeah. which looks very cool from the outside, but maybe they would all feel uncomfortable coming to a rave <laughs> where my friend Reggie's DJing. I yeah. don't know, like writer networks are really important. And I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is like from the outside, I look at all the cool people doing interesting things in London and oh, I feel a bit yeah. left out, but I live in Bristol and yeah. like, there's some really amazing people in Bristol in the Southwest doing really cool stuff. So the one thing that I did want to, well, another thing that I want to talk to you about was your writing mentoring that uh, obviously you cover off in your book, but how did that come about? Uh, was the opportunity brought to you that you know, someone asked you to mentor or was it that you felt you'd got to a place where you want to lower the ladder down behind you and you wanted to uh, mentor people? I was mentored. Okay. Like I don't have a career without the people who mentored me. I don't have a career without Nee Parks and I don't have a career without Niven Govindan or Rajiv Balasubramaniam or Korche Newland or Selena Godin or any of those guys. Like they helped me at times when they didn't need to or probably really didn't have the time to, but they invested time and energy in me and I would be nowhere without them and I can't ever pay any of them back. I could take them all out for a nice dinner. Maybe I should do that, but <laughs> I can't ever pay them back yeah. properly, but I can pay it forward. And that's mm. been the most important thing for me is to just always pay it forward because I thank you for not asking me about this because everyone else always wants to ask me about this, but I'll just mention it very briefly. There's a lot of structural inequality in the publishing industry and the race aspect of it is something that I have tried to combat and where I have had the opportunity, I've tried to be a really as good an ally as I can to people from the LGBTQIA P plus community. I've people who are from a working class background or people with disabilities, but obviously with my lived experience of being a person of color, that's where the majority of my energy has been. And there is so much structural inequality in the publishing industry that the only positive act I can do to try and redress that is mm. to mentor young writers and hope that they mentor young writers and mm. that they mentor young writers and that they mentor young writers. All of this stuff, man, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm standing yeah. on the shoulders of Zadie Smith and Bernie yeah. Evaristo and Courtier Newland and Stuart Hall and all of these amazing people. And hopefully there are people who feel like they're standing on my shoulders and that's how we rise and that's how yeah. we rise and that's how we rise. No, that's, that's great. And uh, thank you for that. I've just got my last two questions. One is, it's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. Was there anything particular that you learned from the last story, which I guess is the, the YA book that you're now applying to your latest novel? 
right towards joy. Okay. Always right towards joy. Okay. That's excellent. Uh, very succinct as well. And that might actually answer the, the next question, which, because uh, the, the last question I always like to sign off, is there one piece of advice you find yourself returning to in your own writing? But uh, if that's something that you've learned recently, right towards joy, is there something that historically that you feel has applied to your writing for a long time that you keep having to remind yourself and keep focusing on when you write? Yeah, it's actually the, it's actually the, hold on, I'm going to get it because it's worth saying out loud in okay. a second. I put it as the epigraph to Your Story Matters. It's a quote by my favorite writer, James Baldwin. The bottom line is this, you write in order to change the world, knowing perfectly well that you probably can't, but also knowing that literature is indispensable to the world. In some way, your aspirations and concern for a single man, in fact, do begin to change the world. The world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter even by a millimeter, the way a person looks or people look at reality, then you can change it. That is beautiful. And thank you very much, Nikesh. Uh, Nikesh Shukla, you've been a wonderful guest and thank you very much for being on this week. Thank you. And that was the real writing process of Nikesh Shukla. Wow. Just wow. If you're not in awe of the man, then read his books. Your Story Matters will become as essential as Save the Cat is for screenwriting. Seriously, I don't write, and I found myself motivated to write something. He's also done a memoir about parenting called Brown Baby, which apparently is great too. Uh, I don't want kids, uh, but if he releases a book about dog rearing, then I'm all here for it. His YA books and novels are excellent. He just does good prose. Very readable, very accessible, very good. He's not on social media at all anymore, and his website just has a short bio and a contact form. So in the show notes, I'm just going to link to his books. If you want to know about Nikesh, read his books. That's the show. Back next week. Only two more shows this season, then I'm running away to a cabin in the woods to read up on authors for season three. It truly never ends. Love you all. Please keep writing until you know when. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally No, it's the harshest mistress of all And life is just a chain A moment spent A thousand hellos and goodbyes Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call I will keep you near Until the world is you Are safe with me
didn't pull up the tights 